0: Okay, so Isaiah 24. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statuses, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers are gone. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom, all gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins, its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. They raise their voices, they shout for joy, from the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. But I said, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me, the treacherous betray, with treachery the treacherous betray. Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split as under. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls, never to rise again. In that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously.
1: Thanks, Vanessa. Let's pray. As we come to God's word, let's pray. Our God, you are the Lord Almighty, the one whose glory fills the earth. And so as we come to your living word, a word that may be hard for us to hear, a word that is vivid and full of emotion, help us please to hear your voice, to take to heart your warnings, and to live now in view of this day to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start by asking you to think about the comforting predictability of our worlds, The comforting predictability of our worlds. I think we often think of predictability in quite negative terms. You know, who, who wants to read a book or watch a film that you can predict from the beginning? It's boring. It's not worth the time. But this week, i thought to myself um, just how comforting it is to live in a world that functions in many ways in a stable, predictable way. I wondered if you've considered that. The sun rises every morning. The sun sets every evening. There are always 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. The seasons come and go. We enjoy summer, and we know that summer will be followed by autumn, and autumn by winter, and winter by spring. We, we know that we'll have rain in Lancaster for most of the year. There is a comforting predictability to our world that enables us to live and flourish as human beings. There is a good observable order, isn't there, baked into creation by our Creator God. But I want to say that that predictability also comes with a danger. It's the danger of thinking that just because the world has always been like this, so it will continue, day after day, year after year, Decade after decade, century after century. Now as you heard Vanessa read the Bible uh, this morning, I wonder if you noticed the chaos of the earth that's described here in Isaiah chapter 24. It's a description of a day fixed by God where order will turn to disorder, where the wheels of this world will come off and where all predictability and safety and security will be stripped away. This is a chapter about the worldwide judgment of our creator God. Now if you're anything like me, then the thought of that day or just that language can easily be pushed to the back of your mind. Perhaps because it's too hard or too painful to think about. Perhaps because we don't really believe that it's going to happen. But probably for most of us. It's simply because we're getting on with life, busying ourselves with the things of the world, living in the daily predictability of a nine-to-five job in a world that keeps turning. But this chapter is here to place the coming day of judgment before our minds, and to force us to dwell on its terrifying reality. However hard this will be to think about this morning, the alternative is far worse. If we fail to consider the day that is coming, then we will have made the greatest mistake that anyone could make in this life. So let me urge you, whether you've been a Christian for many years, or whether you're just looking into things this morning, whether you're new to church, to consider carefully what we hear from God's word. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah for the next three weeks, and we're going to look at four chapters, chapters 24 to 27 now Isaiah, if you know the Bible at all, you might know that Isaiah is a big book, and I think it can be quite a daunting book to know, you know what, it, what is it all about, and how do we get our heads around it? There's lots of names, there's lots of nations, lots of details that are talked about in this book. It's also in a different historical setting. Isaiah was uh, prophesying around the year 700 BC. And so let me just try and summarize the story of Isaiah for you, so that we can get to grips with these chapters over the next few weeks. Let me sum it up by thinking about three stories or three tales with you. It's a tale of two kings, it's a tale of two nations, and it's a tale of two cities. So firstly, a tale of two kings. Pick up a Bible with me, and if you could turn back to chapter 1, verse 1. Let me show you uh, how Isaiah begins uh, begins his book. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. It's on page 685 if you've got a church Bible. Chapter 1, verse 1, we read the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So you can see uh, just from these first words of the book of Isaiah that the vision God will give to Isaiah is about Judah and Jerusalem. It's worth knowing at this point in the Bible story that the nation of Israel is divided into two. There was once one nation with 12 tribes, but now the nation is split in two, and there is northern Israel and there is Judah in the south. So there are these two distinct groups ruled by different kings. There are kings who rule over northern Israel and kings who rule over Judah. If you know the Bible story a little bit, you might remember that Judah is the tribe that King David belonged to. And at the heart of Judah was the city of Jerusalem, sometimes known as David's city or the city of Zion. So we can see from verse 1 of the book of Isaiah that Isaiah will be speaking to the southern people of Judah. And although Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four kings, there are two who are particularly significant in Isaiah's book, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Ahaz is king of Judah from chapter 7 onwards. And Hezekiah is the one ruling by the time we get to chapter 36. So Isaiah is a tale of two kings of Judah, Ahaz and Hezekiah. But it's also a tale of two nations. During Isaiah's day, the superpowers of the world were moving around on the world stage, a bit like a giant game of risk. don't know if it was like that, but that's how I like to think about it. Uh, Nations were rising against nations. um, And there were a few dominant superpowers who seemed to always be rolling the right dice, on the board and two of these nations were Assyria and Babylon throughout the first half of the book chapters 1 to 39 Assyria is the nation looming in the background of Isaiah's vision and prophecy threatening the people of Judah but towards the middle of the book around uh, chapter 36 it's Babylon who come on the stage king Hezekiah who's ruling over Judah at that time gives the Babylonians a tour around the city including a tour of the temple and naively he shows them everything. He shows them where the treasure is, where all the valuable objects are in the temple. It's a bit like giving somebody the the key to your house, showing them where the safe is and giving them the code if you have a safe. (laughs) Isaiah says these Babylonians are going to come back and they will carry away not just the treasure but the people as well. That's where we end uh, the first half of the book. So it's a story of two uh, nations who loom in the background, threatening God's people. And all the while in this uh, book of Isaiah, God is asking his people, will you trust me in the midst of those threats? Will you trust me? Will you lean your confidence on me? Will you depend on my words? This brings us to the chapters uh, that we're looking at um, over the next few weeks. Please turn back to chapter 24 if you're still in uh, chapter 1, page 707. We've had a tale of two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, a tale of two nations, Assyria and Babylon. Finally, Isaiah will tell us a tale of two cities. Now in these chapters, 24 to 27, we'll encounter what could be called the city of man, the city of earth, a city built on human power, which trusts in human wisdom, a city that will fade away with its joy ending, its walls broken, its security lost. And in its place will rise up the city of God, a city established by him, formed and kept by his grace, a city where we can find salvation and security, a city where we hear joyful songs of praise to God that will last forever. But in order for that city of God to be established, the city of man needs to be brought to nothing. In order for there to be salvation, there also needs to be judgment. So let's turn our minds now to our first point, the universal judgment of God. Now, In the chapters leading up to chapter 24, Isaiah pronounced judgment on different nations of the world. Babylon, Assyria, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Arabia. Finally, a prophecy uh, was spoken against Jerusalem. But now, as one commentator puts it, the microscope of those earlier chapters turns into a telescope. Isaiah goes global. And if you notice that as we read, the word earth is used 17 times in this chapter. We've not got one nation in view anymore. We've got all the nations of the earth. And Isaiah will paint for us picture after picture. He will use image after image to describe to us the terrifying day of judgment that is coming for the whole of this creation. We're supposed to feel the weight of this judgment as we go through so that we cannot ignore its reality. So let's read. From verse 1. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken. This word. Right off, we see that the Lord is the one doing these things. The Lord is the judge. He is the one who will lay waste the earth. He will wipe away the people of the earth until there is no one left. Do you see that no one escapes this judgment in these verses? It will be the same for those with riches and those wearing rags. It will be the same for the religious and the non-religious. This judgment will reach into the penthouses of New York as well as the plantations of Africa. It will be for the bankers who give the loans and for the people who need the loans. Nothing can protect a person on this day, not security guards, not walls, not status, not achievements. The earth will be laid waste and totally plundered. To picture it, Isaiah says, think of a worldwide drought. That will give you a sense of the disaster of this day. Have a look at verse 4. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. I guess most of us don't know what it's like to face a drought, not knowing where your next drink will come from, facing miles of walking to find a stream, no crops, no flowers, no plants, animals dying around you, children withering away, adults losing their strength. Isaiah says, this is what it will be like across the world. The whole earth will dry up and the people of the earth will will wither away, parched and desperate. But Isaiah wants us not only to picture the earth, but to now experience life in the city when this judgment comes. This is what we see from verse 7. If you have a look down at verse 7. A place once full of life and joy becomes a joyless, hopeless place. Verse 7, the new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revellers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. Wine was an Old Testament sign of blessing. It was a sign that the earth was producing fruit for its people. But now every vine has withered. All the shops have sold out of wine and all the merrymakers groan. Do you see that no one picks up an instrument anymore to make music? There are no joyful songs left to sing. The only sound that is heard in the city is in verse 11. People crying out for wine. I wonder if you've ever walked into church on a Sunday and just found it almost impossible to sing. Perhaps because there's too much sorrow or sadness in your heart. Perhaps that's you this morning. Well, imagine that feeling for all the people across a whole city. Not only across the city, but across the whole earth. A joyless, desperate, heart-wrenching existence. Reminds me of the story of the, the children of men. I don't know whether you've read that book or seen the film. In the story, every woman on the earth is unable to have children. And so as the years go on, gradually there are no children left. No shouts of laughter in the streets. No sounds of children playing in the park. It's desperately sad. That gives you a picture of this day of judgment. All joy, all song is banished. All judgment and no joy. I was in London over the weekend for a wedding. I spent a bit of time just walking around central London taking it all in. I I loved seeing people gathering together, friends spending time with each other in the park, colleagues gathered for drinks after work, families chatting and playing. But do you see that all of that comes to an end? In verse 10, the ruined city lies desolate, the entrance to every house is barred. Verse 12, the city is left in ruins, its gate is battered to pieces. We've all seen photos of war-torn cities where everyone has fled, where there's no people laughing in the streets, where there are no occupied houses, where all hope is lost. Isaiah says, that is what it will be like for the whole earth. Let's let these pictures sit with us for a moment. Drought, desolation, no music, no singing, no laughter, no meals around the table, no safety, no security, no hope. We may be asking ourselves, why? Why would God do this? Why do the people of the earth deserve this? Well, the simple answer is those, in those verses that we uh, skipped over, verse 5. We're the problem. We have caused this. Have a look at verse 5. The earth is defiled by its people. We have defiled the earth, and so we are facing God's judgment. Look at verse 5 to see what we've done. This is God's case against humankind. They... The people of the earth have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. The world's disobedience to God leads to the world's destruction. That's the point. You might have been here um, at church recently as we looked at the book of Deuteronomy, and there we saw Moses urge God's people to listen to God and to heed his words and to obey them. He is the creator of the world, and his words bring life. And so in Deuteronomy, the people were urged to hear those life-giving words of God and to turn back to him. But instead, verse 5 happens. And verse 5 happens in every human being by nature. We disobey God's laws. He reveals to us the right way to live. We see it in places like the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. We know them written on our consciences as human beings, and yet we choose to disobey We instead violate his statutes, Isaiah says. That word violate could also be translated change. We change God's laws. We change his statutes. And we introduce our own standard of right and wrong. There are lots of ways we could think of that we we do that as people. But just take the popular phrase, love is love, as one example of this. It's a statement that sounds nice. Of course, we want to be loving people. But it ends up promoting a lifestyle where really anything we say goes. If we think it's loving, then we can get on and do it. But what does God say love is? What does his word tell us about how we can love one another rightly? We don't give any thought to that, do we? We change his statutes to fit our standards and our feelings of what is right and wrong. All of us do this in in so many different ways. Verse 5 again, all of us break the everlasting covenant at the heart of Covenant is the idea of relationship. God wants a relationship with the people of this earth, not because he needs us, but because he wants a people for himself who are his very own. He makes a covenant with his people at the start of creation, then with Noah and with David, which those covenants are called everlasting covenants. God promises to bless his people if they love him and obey him and listen to his word, but all of us break that everlasting covenant. We refuse the offer of fellowship with God. And we prefer life with the doors shut to our creator so that we can get on and live how we want to live. That is God's verdict on mankind and therefore, verse 6, will happen. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left as was promised in Deuteronomy and other places in the Old Testament, God will curse the world for its disobedience. Our refusal to listen to our Creator cannot and will not go unpunished. We have rebelled against the perfect holy judge and king of all the world, and our guilt will catch up with us, and the weight of our rebellion will be felt by all the inhabitants of the earth. This judgment is coming for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for me as for you. By the end of verse 13, there's an eerie silence in the city. Singing has come to an end. No one takes up their instruments anymore. All joy has faded away. Until verse 14. Alec Mateer, in his commentary on Isaiah, says that Isaiah is a master of the unexpected note of hope. Praise God for that. As you read Isaiah in your own time, look out for that theme, an unexpected note of hope at a moment of desperation as the song fades in the city here, a hope filled song arises. It's the unexpected song of the saved. Look at verse 14. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord, exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing. Glory to the Righteous One. Hope fades in the city. But people in the city hear a new song. When we thought all joy was gone, a shout of joy is heard on the earth. Instruments are picked up, a melody is sung. People join in with joyful hearts. It's a song, do you notice, that is heard in every corner of the world. People in the west are singing, and then people in the east, and then people in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing. When judgment has come on the earth and the city lies in an ash heap and the curse consumes the people, there is a song. It's a song sung by people who know their God. Do you see that? All the verses, the choruses, the bridges, the interludes in this song are about God. People acclaim the Lord's majesty. They give him glory. They exalt his name. They sing from the ends of the earth, glory to the righteous one. He is righteous because he's done what is right. He has brought judgment to the earth. He has exalted his name. But who are these mysterious singers that pop up in this verse? Who are are the they? If all the people of the earth deserve judgment, if curse consumes the earth, then how can anyone be left standing and not just standing but singing? Well, I wonder if you noticed other hints of this in earlier verses as we read through. In verse 6, for example, the earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. There are some left. We might have noticed it in verse thirteen as we read through. The judgment will be like an olive tree being beaten, or as when gleanings are left after the great harvest. There are some gleanings that are that are left on the ground. And this picture comes into sharper focus for us in verse fourteen. We have a remnant of people taking up a song of joy on the other side of judgment. Here is a glimmer of salvation in the storm, of refuge in the ruin. As we go through these chapters, this song will emerge stronger and clearer. You'll notice this theme that singing stops when judgment comes and singing comes when salvation arises. We'll see more reasons why people can sing. But for now, do you see what Isaiah does? He pulls the power out of the jukebox. He does not linger on this song for very long. He's not yet ready to join in with that joyful song of these people. Look at verse 16 again. At the end, but I said, This is Isaiah speaking, I waste away, I waste away. Woe to me. The treacherous betray, with treachery, the treacherous betray. Isaiah still sees judgment in his vision, and he knows that he deserves the same judgment that is consuming the earth. We see this language in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the Lord in the temple and he says, Woe is me, because I am somebody of unclean lips. He sees the judgment, and so we move very quickly from the unexpected song of the saved to the unavoidable judgment of God. As we read Isaiah, he's not yet ready for us to emerge from the uncomfortable reality of this day of judgment. We might be ready to emerge, but he's not ready for us to do that yet. Clearly, there's more for us to know, more for us to see, more emotion for us to feel. So let's come again to the desperate picture of the world to come in verse 17 over the page. He says, terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. Isn't that a terrifying image? A person hears the sound of terror, runs away as fast as they can, only to find themselves in the bottom of a pit. In their desperation, they scramble out of the pit, running away only to find themselves caught in a trap. Trapped like a wild animal with nowhere to turn. Do you see that the floodgates of the heavens are opened and the foundations of the earth will shake, verse 18. Here is terror from above and below. It's like being in the middle of a tsunami at the same time as experiencing an earthquake and for that to go on forever and ever. Imagine the horror, the desperation, the terror. Our earth, I said at the beginning, seems so stable and secure. The earth where the sun rises and falls, where the seasons come and go will be a place of disorder and chaos. Verse 19, the earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is violently shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. These verses came to mind for me as I was walking around London again. So many stable, secure buildings in the city. Royal Albert Hall, Buckingham Palace, walk past them. A couple of days ago, beautiful old houses that mark the streets of Chelsea and Kensington and Mayfair, none of them will stand on this day. The earth will split, it will violently shake, all stability will end. We're reminded, why aren't we, in verse 20? Because the guilt of the rebellion lies heavy upon the earth. In okay, case so we're tempted to forget, we are the cause, we are the reason. And our passage now ends with a picture of our God reigning over his world in his rightful place, verse 21. In that day, this day that is coming, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. All the powers in the heavens above and all the kings of the earth below will face the same punishment from God. There is no one who is exempt, no one who will escape. And do you see that the only one remaining on this day will be the glorious Lord Almighty. And he shines so brightly that even the sun will be ashamed to give its light. God's glorious presence on this day will make the sun seem like a nightlight in a child's bedroom. He'll have to hide away in his shame because of the dimness of its light compared to the radiant glory of the Lord. His presence, his justice, his rightful rule of this world will be clear for all to see and he will reign in Jerusalem, his city, before his elders gloriously. Here is our king, here is our God. Do you remember the tale I I told at the beginning of the two kings? Kings who attempted to lean their confidence in the foreign nations of the world, nations such as Assyria and Babylon, kings of the earth, who seemed so mighty. The attitude of the kings of Judah was so often, if you can't beat them, join them. This chapter is here to show us the foolishness of trusting in anyone or anything other than the glorious Lord Almighty. The kings of Babylon, the kings of Assyria, will suffer the fate of verse 22. They will be herded together into prison and punished By God. And what is left of these nations but rooms in the British Museum that you can go around on an afternoon? Why would Judah place their security in the hands of these foreign nations if they have seen their God who will reign forever and ever? That's the question confronting the people of Judah. Will they trust in this righteous judge of all the earth? Our world seems so stable. The powers that rise up against God's people seem so powerful. But we must let this chapter change our perspective. The earth will come to an end. Human might and power will come to an end. And the one who will remain is God, the judge of all the earth. So as we come to an end, looking at this chapter, let me ask you two questions. The first is this one. Do you believe that this day is coming? Do you believe it? Do you believe that this day is coming? As we live each day, the sun rises, the sun sets, the hours are fixed, the seasons are fixed, the mountains, the hills, the seas, stability. And yet in the midst of this earth, we also see regular signs of chaos and disorder, don't we? Earthquakes that devastate homes and take lives, tsunamis, storms, other natural disasters. The Bible says that those things should warn us of the day to come. One writer asks us to imagine a giant tarpaulin. Just imagine it with me. giant tarpaulin above your head, sheltering you from the rain as you gather with friends underneath, enjoying a barbecue. But as the rain pours down, the tarpaulin becomes heavier and heavier as it's filled with rain. And then suddenly you feel a drip through the tarpaulin above your head. Water on your head. And it should teach you that this whole sheet is about to fall down. That's what it's like as we look at the warning signs around us? Will we let those chaotic events remind us of this day to come, teach us that this day is coming? As we see in verse 3, the earth will be devastated because the Lord has spoken this word. And if God has spoken it, then it will happen. There is so much in our world, isn't there, and probably a lot in our hearts that would tell us that we can just ignore the warning of this chapter. It will never happen. It won't be that bad. God could never do this. There might be a big part of you this morning resisting what we've been seeing in Isaiah 24. And so the challenge is, will you let your vision of the future be shaped by Isaiah's vision of the future? Will you believe God's word about the terror that is to come? This is not something, is it, that can be pushed to the back of our minds, filed away somewhere to think about at a more convenient time. Do you believe that this day is coming? And if you believe it, do you know the one who can shelter you on this day? I love that moment when you're out on a rainy, windy walk, you find a place of shelter. Maybe it's a wall that you can crouch behind um, that protects you from the wind. Maybe it's the top of the mountain surrounded by the walls of a shelter. Everyone huddles in eating their sandwiches safe from the storm. Well, do you know that there is a person who can be your place of shelter? One person who can bring you into the unexpected chorus of the saved. This judgment day of Isaiah, as we've seen, is coming on the whole world. But there was one man, Jesus Christ, who experienced the horror of this day ahead of time. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, knows what it's like to experience all that we've read in Isaiah chapter 24. All the horror we have felt as we've read through these verses, Jesus felt. All the terror we experienced in the pictures of judgment, he experienced. All the hopelessness that will be known on this future day has already been been known by him. The only one who does not deserve the judgment of this chapter came to take it willingly. Jesus Christ is God, the righteous one, the glorious Lord of all the earth, and knowing that we would have to bear this punishment of Isaiah. He chose to bear it himself so that he would become for us a place of refuge. We deserve our place among the people of the earth, wasted, devastated, facing the consequences of our guilt, and yet we can find ourselves in the cause of the saved, on the other side of judgment, safe and secure, full of joy because this curse has been taken by another when we say sorry to God for our rebellion that we read in verse 6, when we trust in Jesus for rescue, we can find a shelter in the storm. So I want to ask you this morning, are you part of this unexpected chorus of the saved? And if you are, will this joyful song of safety ring out from your lips? Will it ring out from our church? Will we tell people that there is a judgment day coming? That God has fixed a day when he will consume the earth? But will we also tell them that there is a son who has come, who has endured this terrible day ahead of time so that all his believing people won't have to? From the ends of the earth, we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. Let's just take a moment to pause. Why not let some of the images of this chapter come to mind again? Do let the cross of Jesus Christ come to mind again for you. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. In the song we sang earlier, we sang these words, Since Jesus is with you, Do not be afraid. Since he is your God, you need not be dismayed. He'll strengthen you, guard you, and help you to stand, upheld by his righteous, omnipotent hand. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he bore the curse that we've been reading about in this chapter so that we might find our place in the chorus of the saved. Help us, please, to know that this judgment day is coming. Help us please to live our lives in light of that day, living, speaking now in ways that teach the world and that reflect the reality of where this world is heading. And Father, we pray that there'd be some here this morning who would be rescued through Christ so that they might be safe on that day that is coming. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.